We've taken a break from the narrative of Exodus, the book of Exodus, as we have studied the last two weeks, the Passover lamb. And what I want to do this morning during the introduction, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on my intro and I'm going to go through my 10 points very fast. What I want to do in the introduction is kind of help us get our mind refocused on the narrative of Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 1, we see that the people of God are enslaved. They've been enslaved for 400 years. Joseph, if you remember, God's people, Joseph's family came up to, to Egypt and for approximately 30 years, they had good years. But then the Pharaoh died, a new Pharaoh took over, and his policies with the Hebrews was entirely different, and he began to make them slaves. Their cries eventually are made to the ears of God after 400 years thereabouts, and God sends Moses to be a deliverer. He, goes, he meets Moses at the burning bush and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is God? Who is Jehovah that I should listen to him? In fact, I'm going to make it even harder now on the Hebrew slaves. I'm going to make them do more work, yet I'm not going to supply the, the, the clay and everything that, hey, the stuff they need to make their bricks, you're going to have to go find their own. And so the people moan against Moses and they say, why did you even open your mouth in the first place if it was going to be like this? And Moses goes to God and God reminds Moses, I told you, Pharaoh wouldn't let him go the first time. And God sends plagues, plague after plague after plague after plague. And eventually, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, they get tired of it. And a plague would hit and they would say, Moses, please make a stop. And Moses would make it stop. But Pharaoh would not let the people go. So God would bring another plague. Pharaoh and the people would say, make it stop. Please make it stop. Eventually, Pharaoh said, fine, let's make some concessions. You, you guys can go, just the men. But leave your wife and your children here. Moses said, that's not the deal. We're all going. In fact, not even a hoof is going to stay behind. Pharaoh said, just go to this location, but don't go so far away. He said, no, that's not the deal. God said, this is the mountain that we were to go to. And every time Pharaoh would back out on his word and not let the people go. Then comes the Passover, which we spent two weeks studying, but I want you to just keep your mind in the narrative. I want you to see it as one night. Think of it as a 24 hours, this plague comes, and the death of the firstborn hits Egypt, and every Egyptian home, including Pharaoh's, wake up to the death of every firstborn male of their, their sons and of their animals. It is death throughout the land. And when that happens, that night, when the death angel comes, then the people say, including Pharaoh, Get out of here. 
the term used is really as if Pharaoh drives them out. It's not just that he decides he's going to let them go. That's what he originally said was like, who's the Lord that I should let the people go? This, this death of the firstborn was so catastrophic that it wasn't just, okay, you can go. It was, get out of here. You, all of you, leave. And when we read our text this morning, this was the response of the Egyptians to Israel when they said, get out of here, because if you don't, we're all going to die eventually. Like, what could be worse? Death has already come. If we don't stop this nonsense and get them out of here, we're all going to die. And as they were leaving, the people of Israel asked their neighbors for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing and things that they could use for either trade or to survive as they begin their journey into the wilderness. And that is where we pick up our story this morning. There are two points of interest that I want to recognize before getting to the primary text this morning. Number one, I want to note the promises of God being fulfilled in the exodus of Israel. Number two, I want us to note the stragglers who decided to tag along. First, note that the promises of God to Abram have found their fulfillment here. This is what God said to Abram in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God said this would take place nearly 500 years earlier, and it has literally been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled exactly as God said it would, but God's promise did not end there. In the next verse, in Genesis 15, 14, God says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. This promise was now made good also. And I just, this morning, I'm not preaching on the promises of God, but I do not want to overlook this reality in our intro that God's promises always come true, brothers and sisters. That sometimes it might feel like the people of God have had to wait forever and forever and forever for something to come true that God has said would come to pass. But it always, always, always comes to pass. You can bank your life. You can bank your soul. You can bank your eternity on the promises of the word of God. God always keeps his word. Second thing I want us to note is those who wanted to tag along on the ride. In Exodus 12, 38, here's what it says. A mixed multitude also went up with them. And very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So it wasn't just Israel that was actually on this journey. There was a mixed multitude of others that joined them. 
This was an incredibly wise move by the real enemy of Israel, Satan. The Bible teaches us that Satan can act as a roaring lion or be as cunning as a serpent. Here, he is the latter. Cunning as a serpent. If the roaring lion cannot cause us to, to panic in fear and stay put, if the roar of the lion cannot keep us from moving forward, then Satan will decide to join us along the journey in hopes to turn us back somewhere along the way. Why these people joined doesn't really tell us. I think there might have been different reasons for each individual situation. Perhaps there were some that journeyed with them because of intermarriage. They had family that was part of this group of Jewish people who were leaving the land and they wanted to go with them. They didn't want to be separated from family. Perhaps some of them were afraid. I mean, the death of the firstborn had just come. It was obvious that God was with Israel and that whatever little gods Egypt worshipped, they were incapable of holding back the great hand of God Almighty. And they were afraid to stay in the land. Perhaps some had a vision of just how real Israel's God was. And they thought if we could attach ourselves to this group of people and just kind of straggle along, maybe somehow we can catch the blessing they have. But for whatever reason, there was a mixed multitude of others that went up. And it would not be long before this mixed multitude proved to be a thorn in the side of, Egypt, of Israel. In fact, when Israel begins to murmur in Numbers 11.4, it was this mixed multitude that started the murmuring. It was this group of people that would influence Israel to murmur against their God. Now here's the lesson. Here's the lesson this morning for us. It is one thing to win the lost. It's another thing to let them in their lost condition, join league with us. I want to say that again. You got to be cautious who you join hands with. You got to be cautious, if you will, who you let in your camp. The church better be winning the lost. That's what Jesus came to do, brothers and sisters. He came to seek and save that which was lost. But there is a vast, vast, vast difference between winning the lost and joining league with them. And I have watched many Christians fall trapped to this subtle plan of the enemy. Where they have allowed people who have no real concern for the things of God to join into their group. And it eventually causes poison. It eventually causes compromise. Always and in every situation. We have to learn to trust God with His Word. This is why we have the parallel New Testament command in 2 Corinthians 6.17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. 
says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. All right, so this morning with those two observations noted, let's get to the primary heart of today's message. In the next two messages, this one and next week, what we want to deal with is the actual exit of Israel out of Egypt. Now, we could spend a really, really long time on just that. I'm going to try to do it in two weeks, and we are only going to focus on what I believe personally, at least to me, as I study it, as I look at it, what I believe are the two most significant things God's trying to teach the world, trying to teach his people through the exodus. And there are two specific things we want to look at. Number one, the cloud. The cloud that hovered over Israel. And then number two, the parting and walking through the Red Sea. This morning, we're going to look at the cloud. Next week, we're going to look at the parting of the Red Sea. So what is this cloud? We see it spoken of in Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So what was this cloud? Most obviously, it is a symbol or a sign, a visible sign of God's presence with his people. It's called a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It was most likely formed in such a way, the best way I can, in my mind when I vision it, it's like the opposite of when you look at an atomic bomb. There's that, there's that pillar that comes up, and then at the top, there's the big cloud. If you could take that and reverse that, I believe that most likely that is what this pillar looked like. There was a, a, a pillar or a cloud, a, a tube that goes up to heaven, and at the base of it, there's this cloud that covers the entire camp of Israel. I also want, I, I want to note the way that it's worded in Exodus 14:24. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down. This indicates that the object did not change. So it's not like it was something at night and then different at day. It wasn't like there was some transitional moment when the sun come up where the shape of it changed. The, the indication here is that this thing, it, it, it had fire, uh, light in it at night that lit up the ground. And when daytime came, it looked more like a very bright cloud. So that is what was over Israel. The question is, what is the significance of the cloud? As we studied the Passover lamb, what, we've, what we have come to see 
is that the Passover lamb is rich with foreshadows of Jesus Christ. What I want to demonstrate this morning is that the, 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 the pillar of cloud is rich with foreshadows of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at eight symbols of the Holy Spirit that we see in the cloud of Israel. Number one this morning, notice that the cloud was not given until after redemption had occurred. First, we have the slaying of the Passover lamb. Then we have the giving of the cloud. And this is the order that is laid down in the New Testament. First, the Lamb of God was slain. First, he was resurrected from the dead. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And by providing redemption through his blood for all who believe, then comes the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So it is with the experience of every true person who's been born again. The very first thing that we receive, the very first thing that we see, the very first thing that we reach out for is the forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing that comes afterwards is that God gives us the Holy Spirit. I remember the day that I was saved. I, did have, I, I knew nothing about the Word of God and I had no idea what to expect. And honestly, I didn't even know I could be forgiven. But I'll tell you one thing that I absolutely never in my wildest dreams would have believed that God was going to give me the Holy Spirit. That wasn't even registering on my brain. All I knew was that I was an evil sinner, that God was good, and that I stood guilty before him. And I hit my knees, and I cried out to God, and I confessed my sins. I apologized to God for all that I was, for what I had done, for who I was. I just cried out to God. And God forgave me of my sins, and gave me his Holy Spirit. I'll never forget exactly how evident the giving of the Holy Spirit was immediately after leaving service that day. I had new desires. The things I once loved, I didn't love them anymore. I even found myself confused with how in the world did I think the way that I thought two days ago. I had been transformed and God had given me his Spirit. Notice in Romans, Romans is the greatest, what we will call systematic theology book in the New Testament, probably anywhere in the Bible, honestly. So here's what that means. Romans has a system to it. You start at Romans 1, and the entire thing builds all the way up, really through Romans 12. It builds and builds and builds. It starts from the center. In fact, Romans chapter 1 deals with the Gentiles and says, even they're without excuse. I mean, nature testifies, and they reject even what nature testifies about God. And then in Romans 2, it's like, yeah, but you religious people aren't a whole lot different. In some ways, it's worse for you because you know what God has said, and you still live in your sins. And so Romans 3, we come up with the great conclusion, we're all guilty. Like, we're all in big trouble. And then in Romans 4, 
we begin to see the idea of redemption. And in Romans chapter 5, in verse 5, here's what we read. It's not until after forgiveness, not until after redemption, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The term the Holy Spirit does not even show up in Romans until chapter 5 and verse 5, until after we have been justified. The point is simple, brothers and sisters. There is no Holy Spirit filling you. There is no Holy Spirit leading you. There is no Holy Spirit helping you. There is no Holy Spirit covering you until you have first been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Number two, note that the cloud was God's gift to his people. There's not a word that is said about the people asking for this divine help. They're getting ready to journey into a wilderness they know nothing about. They really don't even know exactly where they're going. How they're going to get there. How long it's going to take. And yet, there's no record anywhere of somebody saying, God, would you give us something to guide us? And yet, God in His mercy and His grace knew they would need a guide, and He gives them this gift. So it is with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember when Jesus was leaving His disciples and they would begin their journey? And He told them many times, don't be troubled, fear not. Nonetheless, they were, like many of us. And here's what Jesus said to them in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to God's people. Number three, note that the cloud was given to guide God's people. In Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. Note that the cloud was given to guide Israel through their journey. It was a guide to lead them through the desert, through the wilderness, which would have been nearly impossible to navigate through without the help of of clear direction. Notice the cloud did not follow them. It led them. That's what God said about it. God didn't give them this cloud to like follow them around wherever they were so they had, you know, just so they had shade and some light. No, the cloud, the word of God tells us it led them. So it is with the giving of the Holy Spirit. God has given us, his sons and daughters, the Holy Spirit to lead us. Not to follow us, not to just follow us around, but rather to instruct us, to guide us, and to lead us. Look what Romans 8.14 says about it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Oh, that the church again would understand that spiritually speaking, we can truly do nothing that we are not led to do by the Holy Spirit. We need men and women of God 
holy men and women of God in tune with the voice of the Holy Spirit who recognize that God has given us His Spirit to lead us and direct us. We get in trouble when we want to get out in front of the Holy Spirit. When we just want the Holy Spirit to follow us around and clean up our mess. We get in trouble when we get out in front. When we start thinking in our own mind and we start walking by the dictates of our own heart. We have got to understand that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a gift. But also as a gift to lead us. Number four. Note that the cloud provided light. Again in verse 21. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. In the darkness of night, the fire of God was constantly providing light for Israel. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In moments when we don't know what to do, when we don't understand what's going on around us, when we find ourselves in, in, in times when it, we seem surrounded by the enemy, you will find that it is absolutely necessary that you are in tune with the light of the Holy Spirit to help light the path for you, to help give you understanding. Now, the light provided awareness of what was going on at night. Here's the greater point. I want you to see it. The greater point is not just that the light provided direction at night. The greater point is this, that at all hours of the day, the cloud was providing direction. It wasn't only during the day that the cloud was providing direction, but even during the night, Light came forth to help provide direction. Here's the simple point. That in all minutes, at all moments, at all hours, in every need, the Holy Spirit is here to guide us. That the Holy Spirit provides direction at all times, day and night, in light and darkness, at sunrise and sunset, all that is between, God was there leading His people. And so it is with the blessed indwelling of the Holy Ghost, brothers and sisters. Always God is leading. One reading in the book of Acts will tell you that the first century church was constantly led by the Holy Spirit. Constantly. In all matters. They were in tune with the Holy Spirit. They heard the Holy Spirit. They didn't take church votes all the time on what they should or shouldn't do. They got together and prayed. What do we do with Paul and Barnabas? And the Holy Spirit spoke and would tell them, send them here, send them there. They were led by the Holy Spirit. In every act, in every season, in every need. For this reason, the Holy Spirit is called by such titles as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Number five, 
While the cloud was light for Israel, note that the cloud was darkness to the Egyptians. In Exodus 14, verses 19 through 20, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind him them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. In other words, the cloud lit up the area for the Israelites, but what was happening in the camp of Israel was hid from the Egyptians. It's a fascinating truth that on one hand, the Holy Spirit is providing light, while on the other hand, to the carnal people of the world, it is darkened to them what the work of the Holy Spirit is doing. We see really two pictures of blindness here. First of all, the blindness of fleshly man. Carnal man is blinded from what the Holy Spirit shows God's people. When you are spiritually blind, you cannot see the work and light of the Holy Spirit, though it be happening right in front of your eyes. Egypt is there with a mission, folks, to overtake Israel. But at night, for them, it's utter darkness. It's not the time to attack. Yet, physically, locationally, wherever Israel's at, Israel can see. It is a clear miracle of God, but it is a reality that we still see today. That in the carnal mind and in the carnal heart and in the carnal eyes, you can sit in the same place where God is doing a great work and absolutely be blinded to it. Have no consciousness that the Holy Spirit is moving and doing a work. Blinded to it. We see the blindness of carnal man. We also see the blindness of the enemy because as a whole, they represent the enemy coming to overtake Israel. And I am reminded here that we will never know the sheer number of times the Holy Spirit has protected us And led us and kept us from the attacks of the enemy. The lesson is this. God not only reveals, he also conceals. What a horrible place to be on the side of which God refuses to reveal truth to you. Consider the New Testament parallel with the Holy Spirit in John 14, 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And in 1 John 2, 11, Whoever walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What a terrible thing to be blinded. From the current work of the Holy Spirit here on earth. Now I want to remind you something. These Egyptians had seen 
the divine power of God. It's not as if God was just being mean and all of a sudden decided, you folks can't see what I'm doing. Oh, they had seen what the mighty hand of God could do. They knew these same people who are now marching down Israel are the same people who days ago said, get them out of here. They knew, but they had rejected the light that God had given them. And there does come a time, brothers and sisters, when we have rejected the light that God has given, that God, that God says enough is enough. You will be blinded from all the work that I'm doing. What a terrible place to be when God shuts out the light in your life. I plead with you this morning. I plead with you, sinner. If you have not turned from your sins and come to Jesus Christ, I plead with you. Do not turn away from the light that God has given you. Do not turn away from the light that God has revealed to your heart. Because the more often you turn away and the more often you turn your heart against God, the harder and harder it will become. And there will come a moment in your life when the work of God can be done right in front of your very face and you will be so cold and so dull that you will not even recognize it. Number six, note that the cloud was the place from which God spoke. In Psalm 99 in verse 7, in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. And in Exodus 33 and verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. The cloud was synonymous with God speaking to his people. Let me say that we have a God who speaks. And his primary method of doing so has always been through the Holy Spirit. It's not the only way that God speaks, but it is the primary way that God has always spoken is through the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who still speaks today. Look what Jesus said in Mark 13, 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is the normal way. This is the New Testament way. The Holy Spirit speaking through men and women. Can I tell you, we need more men and women of God who are truly filled with the Holy Spirit and who speak with the Holy Spirit who hear the Holy Spirit, who are in tune with the urgings of the Holy Spirit, and who are willing to stand up and proclaim that which the Holy Spirit has told them to proclaim. We need men and women of God in tune with the Holy Spirit, teaching our Sunday school classes, teaching our children, teaching our youth, filling our pulpits, proclaiming the gospel. We need men and women of God who hear from the Holy Spirit and are truly speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, notice that the cloud was never taken away. So I wanna, I'm going to read a verse in a moment, but before I do, I want to explain something. There actually came a moment when the cloud rested upon the tabernacle, and that's going to be my final point. But at that moment, the, the 
symbolism changes. Until that moment, so long as Israel was wandering, so long as they were waiting on the final instructions of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant would rest and then the manifest presence of God for a period of time would dwell, until that moment, the cloud was never taken away. Now here's what's significant about that. I pray that the Holy Spirit will thrill our hearts this morning with the truth of what I'm about to share with you. We haven't studied what happens from here until the tabernacle. But, spoiler alert, Israel is not a real great group of folks that are just deeply spiritual that never turn to the left or right. I mean, they do some nonsense stuff. Stuff that's, stuff that's even hard to understand how humans could be so stupid. Worshiping a golden calf. Proclaiming this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. Yeah, that happened. Now let me read you something about the cloud. Nehemiah recounting what has taken place in verse 9, chapter 9, 18 through 21. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit. I have that highlighted there. Notice we see the good spirit referenced here as the cloud. To instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Although Israel's wilderness wanderings were filled with mistake and let's just call it sin after sin. The cloud was never taken away to guide them and direct them. And I thank God that in 20 years of serving God, there have been a lot of times I'm embarrassed to say I've got it wrong. I've had the wrong heart. I've treated people wrong. I thought I was right when I wasn't right. I have sinned against God. But the Holy Ghost, He has never taken away from me. The Holy Spirit has always been there to either gently rebuke me or at times grab me by the shoulder and shake me if He must, but to turn me around and to remind me that I am a child of God and that and there is a way that I ought to live and move me to the place of repentance and a brokenness of my sin because no matter how far I have failed, the Holy Spirit has never left me. Look what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit soon to be given to His disciples. Here we see the New Testament parallel in John 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you. Forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I wanted to highlight that last portion of that verse because it leads into the final point. But first, I want to note, Jesus simply made the promise that Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, would be with us forever. 
Finally, the final thing I want us to note this morning, number eight, the cloud rested upon the tabernacle at its completion. In Exodus 40, verses 33 through 35, the tabernacle has been erected. This is Moses when it says he. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was the glory filling the tabernacle in the form of the cloud that signaled its completion. I mean, there's a lot of work that went into, and we're going to go through it if we continue the study of Exodus. There's a tremendous amount of work that went into the tabernacle, tremendous amount of incredible symbolism. But when it was all done and it was erected and the work was finished, then, then the cloud descends upon it. And the glory filled the place so strong so that Moses couldn't even enter in. What a blessed divine truth this is, rich with symbolism of the coming Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 marked the completion of Christ's redemptive work. I want you to remember that even after Jesus died, shed His blood, and rose from the dead, one of the ladies in John chapter 20 and verse 17 comes to Jesus, and this is what He says to her, Do not cling to Me or grab a hold of Me, try to keep Me here, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So here's what Jesus was saying. I just want to be quick. I got to get through this. He was saying, look, I've got work to be done. It's not totally done yet. The blood has been shed. The body was buried. I've resurrected from the dead, but I still have to ascend to my Father. There was work to be done. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that that work was done. Here's what Peter said when the Holy Spirit was poured out. In Acts 2, verses 32 through 35, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So he has ascended to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We see this final work that Jesus had to do. And I'm telling you, this is something we miss so much in the modern day church. The final work that Jesus had to do was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you, it's just equally as important as every other act that he he did. We focus, we can get so focused on what he did at the cross. And thank God for what he did at the cross. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. Our king is not at the cross. He's not hanging there anymore. We can get so focused at the tomb. He's not at the tomb anymore. We can even get focused at the empty tomb. But there's not just an empty tomb. He ascended to the right hand of God Almighty. And when he did, he poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. It was the completion 
Now note that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the tabernacle. The New Testament teaches that we are the tabernacle. It was so common of an understanding in the New Testament church, Paul asked this rhetorical question this way to the church in Corinth. Verse six, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Bless God, brothers and sisters, that is a settled divine fact. The Holy Spirit is in you. Do you not know that? The Holy Spirit is in you. May God give his revelation of this. I'm telling you, when you really grasp a hold of it and recognize this is a divine truth. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. This is a divine truth. A physical reality. God lives in his sons and daughters. In your body. You get a hold of this, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you treat your body. It's a holy place where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you pray. You'll realize you're not praying to a God that somehow is a billion miles away. That you're trying to somehow connect through billions of miles of space. He's here. He's not just near. He's here. He's like in me. He's not outside of me. I'm not trying to connect with a God that's out there. He is in here, brothers and sisters. He is that near. He is that close. This is the blessed reality of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He is with us and in us. To the sinner, it is impossible for me to state how desperately you need the Holy Spirit yet of even greater need for you first you need to be redeemed you need rescued ransomed forgiven transformed you need to be saved born again first that you might escape the eternity of hellfire that is knocking on your door the second when you see and realize that God did not just come to redeem you, but to make you his own and to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide you, you will never know life like the life of the sons and daughters of God who are filled and led by the Holy Spirit.